You are listening to Did You Hear? 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 The Johnson County Library Podcast. This is your Library Insider. Welcome to another edition of Did You Hear? I'm Dave Carson, and this is the Johnson County Library Podcast. How do authors know so much about the setting, the professions of their characters, the situations that the characters find themselves in in their books? Well, they do research. We're pretty excited about this new segment that we have that's going to be uh, airing periodically where we take award-winning authors and we pair them with subject matter experts. We call it Author Research in Action, and it's pretty great. So here's an example. You might have somebody that has a novel that takes place in a bakery, and they're very specific about all the baked goods that they do and all the processes. Well, we have them talk to an actual pastry chef. Or maybe it's a detective novelist, and we have them talk to a private investigator. It's all very cool. So this time around, we've got a historian with expertise about the atomic bomb and a sci-fi writer who's written a sci-fi historical fiction thriller called The Oppenheimer Alternative. Here's reference librarian Helen Hokinson to introduce our authors. Hello, I am Helen Hokinson. I am a reference librarian at Johnson County Library, and my focus is with local writers. So as part of our Author Research in Action program, we've invited Alan Carr and Robert Sawyer to talk together about Los Alamos and um, the Manhattan Project and and all things nuclear energy. Robert J. Sawyer is a Hugo and Nebula award-winning author. He is a member of the Order of Canada, the highest honor given by the Canadian government, and is past president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. The Toronto Star calls him Canada's answer to Michael Crichton. And the New York Times says he's a writer of boundless confidence and bold scientific extrapolation. His newest book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, came out just this month on June 2nd, and it's his 24th novel. So for our podcast today, he will be talking with Alan B. Carr. Uh, He currently serves as a program manager and the senior historian for Los Alamos National Laboratory. During his 17 years at the lab, Alan has produced several publications pertaining to the Manhattan Project, nuclear weapons testing, and the laboratory's development during the Cold War years. He has lectured for numerous professional organizations and been featured as a guest on many local, national, and international radio and television programs. Before coming to Los Alamos, Alan completed his graduate studies at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. So I'm going to uh, turn it over to Robert and Alan and, and let them carry on their conversation. Sure. Hello. Hi, I'm Robert. Uh, Alan, good talking to you. So I'm a very research-driven writer, and I try to, before I bother any expert in a subject, I feel it's my obligation as an author to do as much research as I possibly can. There's no, you know, I was lucky enough 
before he passed away, to spend an afternoon with Louis Alvarez, one of the Manhattan Project scientists, Nobel laureate. He passed away quite some time ago, but um, I got to spend time with him. And I knew going in to talk to him, I couldn't say, so, Louis, tell me how this atomic fission thing works, right? I had to know <laughs> my stuff. So I'm wondering, of course, as you started digging in to your new position when it was new at Los Alamos and started doing your research, what you uncovered that kind of took you aback? The question I always want to ask is, what don't I know that I couldn't have found out by just digging through the public record? So I'm asking you, what kind of blew your socks off when you started going through the archives? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a great question, Robert. And actually, before I get into it, let me tell you a Louis Alvarez story. I didn't know Louis personally. I, I wasn't at the laboratory when he uh, was still living. But uh, we get all kinds of questions from folks all over the world uh, about uh, about our records, about the history of the laboratory. A good friend of mine named Harold Agnew, uh, who was also the third director of the laboratory. Now, he worked for Louis back during World War II. Harold called us up at the, uh, at the archives one day, as we used to be known. And uh, one of my, uh, my predecessor, Roger Mead, I believe he fielded the call. Harold called him up and he said, hey, was I at the Trinity test? <laughs> you, would, you would think somebody would remember. And, and that's still my favorite question that we've ever got. He said, was I at the Trinity test? Because Louis wrote in his memoir that I was there, but I thought I was already on Tinian. And so, <laughs> so that's my Louis Alvarez story. And, uh, you know, going to your question, uh, Robert, about the things that have knocked my socks off. I've been, uh, I've been at the laboratory for 17 years now. Uh, our facility is known as the National Security Research Center, and we have nearly 15 million objects in our collection. It's one of the largest, probably unknown libraries, if you will, uh, libraries slash archives in the country. You know, in terms of holdings, we have uh, millions of more holdings than most presidential libraries, for instance. And so we've got this incredible record starting with World War II, but going throughout the Cold War and, uh, and beyond. Uh, most of our records pertain to how the uh, nuclear stockpile of the United States was originally designed and how it's changed over the years. And so I think that, you know, in terms of things that have knocked my socks off over the years, there's a lot of them. One of the uh, first things was just, uh, it wasn't anything specific, just so much as it was the volume. The collections have actually grown quite a bit over the past 17 years, but uh, to be able to go into a repository, I got uh, my clearance in about five or six months. And again, Roger, who I mentioned earlier, basically gave me kind of free reign to just go and start digging and looking for interesting stories and characters. And so the volume of material was very impressive. The cast of characters uh, was amazing. And, you know, Robert, from your research, you know this as well as anyone, I think, uh, that, you know, you, <laughs> you, you just couldn't make up characters with all of these incredible attributes in the store. I mean, all of it... Uh, uh, it was really, uh, it's, it really is an incredible story. When we go back, talk about the Manhattan Project, but I would say certainly beyond that as well. Um, that, uh, when you could, you know, I have the opportunity to work directly hands-on with a lot of these original records. And that's another thing, you know, when I can hold a, uh, a sheet of paper that Oppenheimer 
for instance, made notes on. You know, he made up his plan for the laboratory on the back of a piece of junk mail, essentially. He just wrote in columns all the questions that would have to be answered if an atomic bomb was going to be successfully built. You know, when you can work with those things, you get, uh, you know, we have the day-to-day correspondence. We have the hour-to-hour telegrams that were sent uh, between the laboratory in Washington for uh, for years after the war as well. Uh, that's uh, those are some of my favorites. Uh, probably my single favorite collection that we have is the early patent collection, which still remains relevant to us uh, at the laboratory today. These patents, you know, we talk, uh, we can look in books and see who who came up with this idea or who came up with that idea. Uh, we still go back to those original patents, and the fact that there are patents <laughs> on this technology often surprises people. But we can go back and we can see their handwritten drawings that were turned into formal. Uh, patent drawings and different things like that. Uh, All of these things and so many more are, uh, again, pretty long answer to your question there, but there's just so much incredible material that we uh, have accumulated and take care of. Well, what you said was very interesting to me, Alan, because you said, of course, you have your security clearance and you have all these Oppenheimer documents that Oppenheimer himself could not look at after he lost his Q, that is, related to atomic matters, security clearance following his uh, his uh, security review board uh, that uh, Louis Strauss had him stand in front of. Um, right. It's ironic that you and I, you have a security level, I don't, obviously, but that you and I can look at things that were withheld from Oppenheimer. Now, you mentioned the Trinity test right at the beginning. 75 years ago, as you well know, my friend, this summer, the birth of the atomic age. And what I think is fascinating is to get to, as a researcher, look back and see what was suppressed for a considerable amount of time. For instance, during the Oppenheimer security uh, hearing, I.I. Robbie was one of the speakers, Nobel Prize winning physicist. Uh, Isidore Isaac Robbie, but he never, as you know, used his first name, I.I. Robbie, uh, said on the stand, this is a pretty bad bit of business. We have, a, we have the A-bomb and a whole series of them, and then redacted, for many years, redacted his next line because it was considered top secret, what he next said. Right. Uh, so he said, yeah, we have the A-bomb and a whole series of them. And of course, I was dying to find out. And it's only relatively recently that finally out from under that thick black magic marker you must be so used to seeing in various <laughs> versions of the document that the second half, and we have the super, which is the nickname for the hydrogen bomb, hundreds or thousands of times more powerful than the atomic bomb. And we have the super and a whole series of it. And what more do you want from this man, from Oppenheimer? Mermaids? So (laughs) it really is interesting that we're at a stage now where so much of what had to be kept secret is no longer uh, of any military significance. And we're finally getting a fair bit of that real story. The novel that I wrote or the, the tours of the archives that you give today you couldn't have given 25 years ago. Nobody could have done 50 years ago. And 75 years ago, it was the deepest secret on the planet. Exactly. You know, there's a, uh, 
I want to talk about the hearing some more. I know that that's a part of the book. And uh, before I do, though, I want to mention security and classification and things like that. Um, I, I have a little bit different perspective, I guess, because, you know, I work uh, I work at a laboratory. I work in a vault. This is well known. People know about this. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we see articles often written about government security. You know, is the government overly secretive, this or that? Why is this still classified? Well, you know, <laughs> I, my perspective is a little different in that, you know, we have a small staff of mostly uh, librarians, archivists, uh, a couple of historians, and, uh, you know, we don't have an awful lot of people who just have time to go and look through 14, 15 million documents to see if the classification level on them has changed. <laughs> so I, I think that it's it's less about intentional secrecy and uh, a little bit more about just the uh, the logistics involved when you talk about all of the uh, records that we have and uh, the, the, you know the the number of classification reviewers etc cetera, etc cetera, etc so one thing that we try to do uh, is that when we're conducting our research in the archives for the laboratory and things like that you know when we come across things uh, photographs films things of that nature and we do have a lot we have probably a million approximately a million photographic negatives we have 20,000 plus reels of motion picture film, we try to uh, run some of the more interesting ones through declassification ourselves. And so that's uh, that's how we uh, try to get a few more things. And a few things trickle out every now and then. Of course, there's the Freedom of Information Act process and things like that. But again, you know, there's just, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anybody has the uh, time or resources to just sit around, you know, looking at 14, 15 million documents over and over again to see if the classification rules have recently changed. And so I would ask people to bear that in mind with us too. It is, uh, we are a a, a government bureaucracy, things can be tough to work with sometimes. Uh, one thing, Robert, you know, for your research, for instance, we can't, uh, you know, we're not an open repository, uh, probably pretty obvious based on the type of information that we have in there. But uh, we, we do, we have an obligation. These were created, uh, the records that we have were created at taxpayer expense. And so, for instance, one of the uh, one of the tools that we've tried to make available are finding aids. You know, if we can't directly release a finding aid to someone, we'll tell them uh, that it exists and they can submit a Freedom of Information Act request for it. That would be the case with uh, Oppenheimer's office files, for instance. There is a publicly releasable inventory of those files. And so that's how we try to get people to the records, which they essentially paid for, uh, right? And Absolutely. You know, one of the resources I relied upon uh, is Alex Wellerstein's blog. Alex Wellerstein is a historian, as you well yes. know, of, yes. this, uh, of this time period. And his blog has the very straightforward on-the-nose title of the Nuclear Secrecy Blog. <laughs> right. And it's full of fascinating, in many cases, he or one of his colleagues filed that Freedom of Information Act request that got stuff. And as you say, there's no malice at this point and there's no egos to be protected. Right. Uh, I was able to say, you know, and one of my great joys when I finished my novel was I got to send an autographed advanced reader copy, Bound Galley, to Freeman Dyson, one of the last living uh, scientists involved to one degree or another with the project yes. uh, of, of stature. I mean, there are others, but, uh, you know, well-known. Of course, Freeman passed away the week after he got my book, but it was a joy to be able to say that some of this was still in living memory. Now, most of it is not. There aren't egos to protect or reputations to protect. The world has decided whether Oppenheimer or Teller or you name your favorite character from the Manhattan Project is the hero or the villain. 
And so it really, you know, there is a value of looking back from this perspective. And yet, as a novelist, the gift that the materials that were so meticulously preserved by you and your predecessors gave to me uh, from that period was something if I'd been writing a novel set in 1840s instead of the 1940s, I wouldn't have had, which is all these photographs, sound recordings, verbatim yeah. transcriptions of conversations. Uh, of course, because Oppie uh, was thought to be a communist, certainly a fellow traveler. Uh, right. He was bugged and recorded and it was transcribed. The wealth of material. I didn't have to guess at what Oppenheimer sounded like or what Edward Teller looked like when he was speaking. It's all there. And that wealth of material uh, helped me to bring to life what you described, of course, as this larger-than-life cast that I was gifted with as a novelist. If I had made up these characters, you were exactly right. People would come <laughs> on, Sawyer. What are you trying to pull here? That's right. Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, Richard Feynman, one of the most colorful personalities imaginable, uh, Nobel laureates or people who, in Oppenheimer's case, know Nobel, but directorship of the Institute, for advanced study, a teller, no Nobel, but the Einstein medal. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, yes. The cast of characters here. Uh, absolutely. And that's why, you know, we, uh, you know, today the institution has changed uh, quite a bit. In the beginning, we were a nuclear weapons laboratory. We became a nuclear science laboratory. Some interesting projects there. We uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about a couple of those during the course of the interview. Uh, today, we're a multidisciplinary facility. We're uh, about twice the size of Manhattan in terms of uh, geography. We have over 12,000 people who work here. But a lot of our missions uh, today are tied right back in with the work of World War II. And so we take very seriously the uh, obligation that we have to take care of these uh, of these incredible and unique records that we have, which are still very much in use for what we do today. Uh, but we also recognize that these have uh, a larger value to the, or to the, to the nation, to the world, if you will. Just to put that in perspective for our listeners here. So you have double the number of workers now that were there at the peak of Oppenheimer's time. You had about 6,000 people on the Mesa. And you've got about 12,000 at this point. And the broadening of focus, I think this is something we have to remember. I was having an interesting debate recently on my Facebook wall. Somebody said, well, you know, out of the Apollo program, we got Velcro and pens that can write upside down and a whole list <laughs> of spinoffs. What was the spinoff benefit of this atomic bomb effort? And a number of people, including myself, for a few minutes were scratching our heads. And then Gregory Benford showed up, who was Edward Teller's graduate student. And Greg said, and, and now a professor of physics in his own right, and said quite rightly, nuclear power. So the right. broadening of the focus, yes, all of this started in the heat of war with Einstein writing or signing a letter written by Leo Zillard to FDR and urging the development of atomic weapons. But that was less than three years of the yes. purpose of the undertaking at Los Alamos. And the Los, Los Alamos National Laboratory now is as much, uh, although a lot of work is still classified, is as much a place of peace as it is a historic setting from wartime. Right. It's it's completely changed. You know, the uh, we we trace our story here back to 
the war, of course. That's something that we remember, uh, you know, this summer, as you mentioned earlier, Robert, it, it is the 75th anniversary of both Trinity and the atomic bombings. And those are things that we will uh, uh, be commemorating this summer. But the laboratory is uh, just a very, very different place now. And so you can find our researchers not only uh, helping to ensure that the nation's uh, remaining stockpile is safe and and reliable, but also you can find our researchers building instruments for the Mars Curiosity rover, for for uh, for instance. They have designed many of those instruments, or are, are driving them right now, if you will, and are developing the next generation uh, Mars generation uh, or Mars rover in conjunction with many others, of course. I don't want to take more credit than we deserve, but we're involved in things like that. Uh, the, the human genome, GenBank. Uh, right now, we've got scientists who are working on COVID-19. Of course, you know, a few months ago, before COVID-19 broke out, at the end of one of my introductory slides, people who wanted to learn about the lab, maybe visitors, play, things like that, uh, one of the last bullets on the slide was that we have the computing capability to, mo uh, to model the spread of pandemics. Well, nobody cared about that in February. But <laughs> all of a sudden, that's a pretty significant capability that people care about. So it is a very uh, interesting place to work because I guess as a historian, I've told people before, uh, I'll never be out of a job because we're still manufacturing history. It's, it's a really <laughs> cool place. We still, we, as we did during the war, uh, we have people from all over the world uh, who work here at the laboratory. You get all kinds of perspectives. And yes, as we mentioned, you know, uh, 12,000 employees of the laboratory. Uh, there are about 20,000 people who live in our county uh, here approximately. And uh, New Mexico as a whole is a big state geographically, but there are only about 2 million people who live here. And so uh, in a sense, you know, it's a, it's a small state and um, it's tough even to go to the airport in Albuquerque and not see somebody that I know. And so it's, it's, a, it's a neat place. It's an incredible state. And Los Alamos, I'm, uh, I'm glad Oppenheimer loved New Mexico so much. I've been happy to uh, work here and to have my family uh, live with my family here. So. Well, and that's worth uh, perhaps mentioning is that it was J. Robert Oppenheimer, who in a, you know, I, I portray him in the novel, somewhat of a Machiavellian character. He uh, came across as not necessarily knowing what he was doing when he got the job, but he right. maneuvered Leslie R. Groves and he maneuvered, uh, you know, um, uh, Bush and Conant and so forth to agree to have the uh, Los, Alamos, Los Alamos National Laboratory, just laboratory as it was called then, uh, near his own country home of Piero, uh, Piero Caliente. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> a place that he had loved for, uh, since 1922. He'd spent the summer of 22 there. As an 18-year-old kid, his father had sent him off uh, because Oppie had been sickly as a child, a physical weakling. His father knew he would never survive at Harvard if he didn't get toughened up, sent him out. And it could have either broken this delicate poetry reading child or in the classic American frontier sense, made a man out of him. Well, it did the latter. <laughs> he fell in love with the night sky. He fell in love with the desert plants. He became an accomplished and experienced horse person. And when it came time, he maneuvered Groves to say, no, no, no. You can't put your lab next to, you wanted to put it at Oak Ridge is where he was going to do uranium separation. I mean, you can't do it there. It's got to be 
off in isolation. Let the scientists think. And, oh, by the way, I know the perfect spot. It was a <laughs> wonderful um, coincidence in a way, a, a, a concatenation of little factors Oppie being a weakling child, his father knowing of a dude ranch that he would send Oppie, that led to the lab being where it is today. And New Mexico being the center of atomic and nuclear research. Right. You know, New Mexico, uh, a lot of people still think that we are not part of the United States. And I just want to clarify that for, for the listeners today. We are, in fact, part of the United States. Uh, New Mexico is, uh, you know, but even back then was viewed kind of as uh, really part of the Wild West. It had not been a state for particularly long when Oppenheimer arrived on the scene here. But it is a remarkable place. There are uh, centuries of history uh, in this state. There are many cultures here. Uh, it's incredibly diverse in that regard. And so, the you know, and to go on, the, topogra the topography is diverse as well. Uh, the way that I describe it is about here where we are in Los Alamos. Uh, if you've not been here before, imagine, you know, your, your kind of stereotypical view of the Rocky Mountains, stereotypical view of the desert Southwest. And imagine that they were in a car wreck head on, and that's kind of where we are. You get these southwest mesas. Uh, you, you get some pretty significant mountains in the area uh, as well. The, uh, the topography itself is interesting and diverse. And of course, as I mentioned a little, uh, little while ago, there still, even today, aren't that many people in this incredible state that we live in. And I can certainly see why Oppenheimer developed the views that he did. You know, you mentioned his uh, upbringing in New York. I believe he was born in 1904. And we might have certain images that come to mind when we think of 1904, New York City being, you know, crowded and, and polluted, things of that nature, uh, unhealthy air quality. Even today, uh, we have incredible air quality here. Uh, I think people are scared of the laboratory a lot and all these health effects and this and that. This is one of the safest places I would imagine in the world that you can live. So I have no complaints uh, when it comes to things like that. But yeah, Oppenheimer uh, acquired all these skills, fell in love with this state, which is certainly uh, understandable, I think, to all of our visitors. And, uh, you know, the it, it is interesting that, you know, all places considered this is where the lab sprang up. It's also not that far, of course, from, you mentioned it earlier, the Trinity site, which was the site of the world's first atomic bomb explosion. Now, we're only talking by audio, so I can't show you what I have in my hand here. But it's a little piece of Trinitite, which was legally collected many, many years ago and was <laughs> bought on the aftermarket. Uh, of course, it's still radioactive, but Trinitite being the fused, almost volcanic, although obviously it's not from a volcano, but like volcanic glass created from the initial explosion. And one of the things that was fascinating to me, we talked about what knocked people's socks off when they started to do our research, uh, was that there was a thought that when they set that bomb off for the first time, July 16th, 75 years ago, that they might set the atmosphere on fire, that they might ignite the atmosphere and put an end to the human race. And originally there had been a slowing down, in fact, a, a, a essentially a halt on the development until the numbers were recrunched to it only being, you know, a two or 3% chance that it was going to be the extinction of the planet. 
when they set the bomb off <laughs> instead of the 10 to 20 percent chance that originally had been calculated. And what's right. astonishing about this project to me is how little oversight there was. There was no congressional oversight. As you well know, Harry S. Truman, who was vice president to FDR, did not know about the Manhattan Project until right. after uh, uh, FDR died and Truman was sworn in. He was sworn in. Hello, Mr. President. By the way, <laughs> you probably should hear about this now. The level of secrecy and agency. Uh, we're talking, of course, about uh, what happened in New Mexico. But, of course, in Chicago, the first atomic pile uh, under Enrico Fermi's direction was built under the stadium stands under where people sat to watch the football games at Stag Field at the University of Chicago without even bothering to tell the president of the university, well, we might have a runaway criticality event and destroy Chicago. <laughs> it's, it was a wild, you mentioned the Wild West, and I guess that's the metaphor I want to come back to. There was a time when even scientists were frontiersmen and frontierswomen doing pretty much whatever they wanted. And we're just so, so lucky that in the end of it all, uh, we on this side all came out pretty much unscathed. And of course, we can talk in a minute about uh, our feelings about what happened to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But there were a lot of close calls that were just pushed through in a way that you'd kind of think today would require a plebiscite, a congressional debate, maybe international consultation, and we're just done. Absolutely. The, you know, when you look back at World War II, you had a worldwide crisis that, uh, in a sense at least, was really unprecedented. And I guess to set up my thoughts on this, occasionally people will ask me, well, you, do you think that the laboratory could do something like the Manhattan Project again? And they're usually uh, asking that question sarcastically because they know about all of the rules and oversight, uh, you know, security rules, safety rules, et cetera, et cetera. We do have a lot of rules and policy now that we did not have during World War II. And, uh, you know, when, I, uh, when I'm asked that question without hesitation, my answer is, oh, yeah. Yeah, the lab could definitely do something like the Manhattan Project again. But that comes with a massive caveat. What kind of catalyst would you need for a place like Los Alamos or one of the other national laboratories or, uh, or a host of other entities? What kind of catalyst would you need to where you uh, to, to make safety, you know, the fifth or sixth priority? <laughs> And that's what it was during World War II. You know, things like safety were important, but they were not job one. Uh, today, that's kind of job one is taking care of each other, looking out. They took risks that uh, during World War II that we would not take today. Uh, and you can go on down the list. You know, things like the environment. I think that very little of it. Uh, if any thought was given to the long-term uh, preservation of the environment. If there was irradiated materials, contaminated materials, uh, they dug a hole and they buried it. Or they just bulldozed it off one of the mesas <laughs> into a canyon, right? But, and we look about that, we look at that now, and it's kind of horrifying to, to imagine a set of circumstances like that. But when we go back to World War II, the world was a much different place. The, uh, the United States was one of the... Uh, was a country that I would say was rather fortunate among the major combatants of World War II. And that 
the United States only lost about 310 Americans or so killed in combat every single day of the war. Uh, now, that sounds, that's another number that sounds staggering by today's standards. But during World War II, it could have been a lot worse. For instance, the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin helped Hitler start World War II. Uh, you'll remember that he saw, they signed the non-aggression pact. They both invaded uh, Poland. Eventually, Hitler uh, turns his back on that agreement, invades the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union paid dearly for that. The Soviets lost fifteen to 20,000 people every day killed as a result of military action. And of course, hanging over that, you've got the uh, what seemed like the very real possibility at the time of Hitler having a nuclear monopoly. And so when you think about it, you know, well, Hitler could have a nuclear monopoly tomorrow, maybe. You know, we know a lot more about that now, and the Japanese had a nuclear weapons program as well. But, you know, we they didn't know that at the time. But when you think about that, Hitler with nuclear weapons and no one else, when you think of the hundreds, in the case of the Soviet Union, perhaps tens of thousands of people who were dying in that country alone, uh, yeah, safety, maybe we can move that down to priority three on the list, uh, you know, so it was very different back then than uh, than it is today. Fortunately, we continue to live, of course, in a uh, very dangerous <laughs> world. Sadly, but uh, but that was World War II, and that was the World War experience, World World War II experience, if you will. And I think that that's important for helping to establish some of the context for which these decisions were made. You know, I read uh, an oral history the other day with one of the army engineers who built the laboratory. And he said, yeah, General Groves told us we didn't need to go through the bidding process, just hire people. And if we get in trouble, just, you know, the general said, just let me know and I'll take care of it. And the guy said, you could get thrown in jail for doing that today. <laughs> but it was World War II and uh, things were different. And, so. and a, a blank check, in essence, they spent $2 billion, which is a lot today, in 1945 dollars on this project you mentioned um the soviets at the time stalin they were our allies and you know i think a lot of millennials don't remember any time when the when the uh soviets were our allies but they were the ally that was kept out of this the atomic club the three parties that knew were my country canada we provided Mm -hmm. uranium and we had a fine lab in Montreal. We provided some scientists. Great Britain, who had started before the United States with what they codenamed their tube alloys effort that was folded into the Manhattan Project, and of course, the United States. And this sort of love-hate relationship with the Soviet Union during World War II is, in fact, what brought about the downfall of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Because before he headed to Los Alamos, he was approached by his best friend, a uh, French literature professor, Hocan Chevalier, right. fellow professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who said, you know, just saying here, Lop, just, just blue skying, but <laughs> if there was, you know, some information you had about something that might be of interest to the Soviets, I, I know a guy over at Shell Oil who could get it to them, you know, back channel it. And of course, we have, thanks to the depth of record, we have the transcript and the audio recording of Oppie being interviewed by uh, Manhattan Project Security Chief uh, Boris Pash um, when Pash was, you know, questioning him about all this. And as Oppie said, 
They're battling, they being the Soviets, for their lives over there. Thousands of their boys are dying every day along the Eastern Front. And they'd surely like to have an idea. They'd surely like to have an idea of what is going on here in America. This overture was just to make up for the defects of our official channels. So there might be, you know, a couple of guys in the State Department who would block such communication. So it was fascinating in terms of the history of nuclear weapons, and I want to ask you directly about this, how much of what ultimately came out of Los Alamos was necessary and appropriate for ending the Second World War, and how much of it was the very considerable desire, first by FDR and then by Truman, as orchestrated by General Groves, to establish a post-war order in which the United States would be seen as the one and only superpower essentially dictating to Russia and everybody else what the new era of humanity post-World War II was going to be. Right. So that's a that's a huge question. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I waited. <laughs> I didn't yeah, open with that. You don't open with that. <laughs> right. No, that's it, well, it's a great question. And I mean, it's really at the crux of the matter when we look at the last uh, 80 years of history. And in fact, uh, not to intimidate our listeners or you, Robert, I, I want to go back a little bit further than 80 years. You know, you mentioned the Soviets were our allies, and they certainly were. And as we talked about earlier, the Soviets uh, suffered probably, probably more casualties than any other uh, country during World War II. The, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, and for that matter, the British and the Soviets, never really got along. You know, I think, unfortunately, we make the mistake sometimes of starting the Cold War narrative in 1945 or 1948 or, or one of those post-war years. Uh, the, the United States really never got along with the Soviets, uh, really going all the way back to 1917 in the Great War with the Bolshevik Revolution. I don't believe that the United States, for instance, even recognized the existence of the Soviet Union formally, uh, diplomatically, until 1933, I think. And so, you know, we did not have a good relationship with the Soviets. The Brits, I think that Churchill was interested, um, if I'm not mistaken, and everybody should know, everybody who's listening, to never trust a historian. Look up, <laughs> Look up everything that I've said and, and let me know where I got it wrong, because I'm sure that I will get some points wrong. But I believe Churchill was interested possibly in declaring war on the Soviet Union after they invaded Poland. And of course, the Soviet Union invaded Finland, annexed all of the uh, Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, approximately 20% of Romania, and protected Hitler's flank so that Hitler could invade the rest of Europe. And so you tack on to that the fact that uh, the Soviet Union, it's been estimated by historians such as Robert Conquest and others that uh, Stalin may have murdered as many as 5 to 20 million of his own people. That's a big range, but it gives you some idea of what was going on there. And of course, there's definitions, well, what constitutes a murder, this, that, everything else. But uh, this was an incredibly brutal and uh, violent regime that we never really liked. And the only thing that held us together uh, during World War II was Hitler. Uh, Hitler was the adhesive of the um, of the wartime alliance, and of course, as we know, when Hitler was uh, after he died and after the war came to an end, the relationship kind of went back to where it was before. You mentioned Oppenheimer, and uh, to bring that story full circle, how ironically this uh, relationship with the Soviet Union, the advent of the nuclear era, were kind of his downfall. Uh, 
in the 30s, of course, during the Great Depression, a lot of people in the United States and worldwide didn't know where their next meal was coming from, right? And so communism looked like a really good idea. And uh, because the propaganda was everybody here is free and equal and has a place to live and something to eat and a job and all these other things, to, to a lot of people in the West, that seemed like a really good idea. Now, Oppenheimer, of course, was never in need himself. Uh, he was he came from a very uh, wealthy, very comfortable family, but he was always uh, comfortable with uh, pretty left-leaning politics, I think would be a fair way to uh, put it. And uh, of course, his first serious girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, who is in the book, uh, who's a character in the book, uh, she was a member of the Communist Party. His wife, Kitty, who he married uh, a few years later, member of the Communist Party. Frank Oppenheimer's brother, uh, I believe his sister-in-law. These were all members of the Communist Party. And Oppenheimer himself was not. But uh, but it was something, it was an idea that he was sympathetic to, given the uh, way that things were in the 1930s. And of course, he contributed to communist-friendly organizations and things like that. Uh, many people who had been interested in communism really distanced themselves from the cause uh, when Stalin uh, started, you know, again, partnered with Hitler to start the war and started invading all of these other countries. But, um, but nonetheless, during the Red Scare and the height of McCarthyism, these things came back to uh, haunt people like Oppenheimer. They were used against them, unfortunately. And uh, definitely unjustly in his, uh, in his hearing, which we can come back into in a little while. But before we get back to uh, the, the mid-50s and the hearings of that thing, I do think it's important, obviously, to go back to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What, uh, you know, when the atomic bombs were put into combat, what was the main reason why? I think if I can summarize that question, I, I've heard this question many times before in many different ways. I would first direct anybody who's interested in this to visit Alex Wellerstein's blog, because Alex, just over the past week or two, has written an excellent article on this topic from the point of view of a historian. A lot of people who have created the major schools of thought uh, in this area are not historians at all. They're policymakers, they're political scientists, things of that nature. Alex has written... uh, again, what I would consider to be an excellent article on this. And I think the title is something to the effect, something that historians wish every journalist knew (laughs) about the end of the war. And because there's two, as Alex puts it, and I would concur, there's two basic schools of thought that have prevailed when we look back at Hiroshima and Nagasaki over the past uh, 75 years now. One is the traditional Stimsonian school, if you will. And if we can boil that down to its most basic idea, the atomic bombs won World War II. Uh, Without them, who knows, the war would have gone on for years or, you know, this, that or whatever else. And there's more to it than that. And these are both highly nuanced. uh, But that is kind of the traditional school, the Stimsonian school, as Alex calls it. Uh, Of course, Henry Stimson being the Secretary of War at that point in time. Uh, On the other side, uh, starting really in the 60s, you have uh, another school of thought, which uh, probably the most well-known proponent of this is is Gar Alperovitz, uh, who's written articles and books on this topic. Uh, And, uh, you know, the basic school of thought there, again, and this is really boiling things down, is that that nuclear weapons were unnecessary at the end of World War II, uh, that, uh, you know, in fact, they may not have been useful at all, that uh, they were used more to intimidate the Soviet Union. That was the main reason, et cetera, et cetera. And so, Robert, you've looked at this uh, quite a bit. And before we go on, would you concur that those are, I mean, really 
the very basic descriptions of those two schools of thought. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And uh, Alex does have an excellent uh, blog post uh, about it. It's his most recent one. I also have a page on my website. I'll just direct people to uh, sfwriter.com because I write science fiction, sfwriter.com, the Oppenheimer alternative. Did the U.S. have to bomb Japan? where I've tried to marshal a number of sources, including uh, at the end, I unearth a, a long piece uh, by Guy Alperovitz, who you mentioned, Gar Alperovitz, mm-hmm. who of course wrote um, extensively on this topic, but you're absolutely right. There's very right. much a hawk position, which is represented by Stimson, and a dove position represented by Alvaro's I can't even say it right. Alperovitz, forgive me. <laughs> Alperovitz, right, right. A-L-P-E-R-O-V-I-T-Z. Um, and yeah, you're right. They're they're diametrically opposed and never the twain shall meet. Right. And and so, you know, these, uh, these views both have their merits and their mythologies, as, as I would say. And I would say that usually the mythologies are inadvertently corrected because there are certain elements of the story that are either dim- de-emphasized or left out altogether. This happens on uh, on both both sides. And so Alex kind of teases these out and, and looks at them and uh, explores the problems with both narratives. Now, the other thing is that, uh, as I mentioned also, there's merits to both of these narratives as well. One thing though, and again, going back to Alex, that he brings out at the beginning of that article that I think is very important to understand is that, you know, there are some objective facts uh, about this story, but there's not all that many of them. Uh, A lot of this story is subjective and you can look at what happened. And uh, it's one thing if you ask an objective question, what, what day was Hiroshima bombed? Well, we could find a factual answer to that. The uh, question of, for instance, this is a question I've heard many times. Was it necessary to use the atomic bombs at the end of World War II? Well, necessary to do what? I mean, the question, the formulation of the question itself is uh, is very loaded to, to achieve a certain end. And so what I want to emphasize to anybody who is, is listening uh, today is that they, a lot of people take different approaches to this. A lot of people emphasize different parts of the narrative, and I'm no different than that. And so you may survey all of the information available. You may come up with a completely different opinion uh, than, than I do. The approach that I take to looking at the end of World War II is the approach that I take to baking, <laughs> oddly <laughs> enough. And so let's say that we want to make a batch of chocolate chip cookies. Can I make a batch of chocolate chip cookies with one ingredient? No, at least they would not be very good chocolate chip cookies if I only use baking soda to make them. Right. And I think that one of the, one of the fallacies of these schools is that they, they uh, tend to, I think in Stimson's case, the Stimson Truman traditional school, if you will, is, you know, using atomic bombs in, in war was one of the most significant events ever in history. And, you know, if you're responsible for making that decision, you want to try and be on the right side of history, right? I mean, and so the motivation there is very clear. You know, we, we, we did what we did because we had to do it. We did it in good faith. We think that it was the best in and we saved all these lives. You know, we, we've heard this, this before. And I think that uh, because, you know, there's some merit there, but there's also some major omissions as well uh, that help provoke what we'll call, again, the Alperovitz uh, school 
which addressed some of these uh, inadequacies, inadequacies as well. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for me, and dare I say Alex too, he, he's not here, but you can go read his piece. It's more complicated than either of those approaches. There's, there's a lot more to take into consideration. And of course, at the end of the day, a lot of it is subjective. A lot of it has to do with, you know, personal ethics and morality uh, and all of these other considerations, perspectives of all of the people involved. So going back to my uh, analogy of making chocolate chip cookies, I would strongly argue that no one thing ended World War II. Uh, and, and that multiple things were very important to producing the outcome that we saw in mid-August uh, 1945. Uh, for instance, and uh, Alex, and I mentioned Alex several times because this really is a good article and I don't want to appear to be taking any of his, uh, his ideas. But, uh, you know, when you consider, for instance, the United States or the Allies, let me expand that. The Allies had defeated Japan in battle after battle in the Pacific for years with only a tiny fraction of their resources. Now, after Hitler had been defeated in uh, in Europe, imagine, if you will, and I'm going to use rough numbers, but, but I think that, uh, I think between 10 and 20% of the Allies' resources were used in the Pacific theater. You're going to go from 10 or 20% to 100% on Japan Who's going to win, even if nobody had even thought about atomic bombs? It's obvious. I mean, I mean, the the math, the math just shows. Even if the Allies had to invade Japan, which was not imminent in mid August 1945, but it was one of the uh, uh, potential paths forward, if you will. But uh, you know, they had the conventional force to completely annihilate Japan and win. Okay, so if the question is were atomic weapons necessary to winning the war? No, no, they weren't. <laughs> if, if the question changes a little bit to, were the atomic weapons necessary to winning the war by mid-August 1945, then things get more interesting. And so going back to our chocolate chip cookie, we've talked about all of those conventional defeats that uh, the Japanese suffered in the Pacific. Starting late in 1944, the Allies were able to use conventional bombing against Imperial Japan. And you think about it, for most of World War II, the Japanese people didn't see it. They, they didn't hear it. They didn't personally experience it. You hear about these small bombing raids that were uh, like the Doolittle Raid and the small raids that were launched out of China. But the big bombing raids didn't start until very late in the war. I think that in uh, 1945, in March of 1945, uh, one bombing raid killed 100,000 people in Tokyo using incendiary devices. So the death of Imperial Japan was uh, pretty rapid and very violent. And so we can add conventional bombing to that. We can add the blockade. The Allies were attempting to uh, blockade, block, uh, blockade Japan, and were doing a pretty successful job of that, uh, pushing, starting to push Japanese uh, Japan to the brink of starvation. So I think that the success of the blockade that was in place and which the Allies were trying to tighten, of course, the Japanese were fighting back against all these things, also played a crucial role as well. Um, you know, the Germans dropping out of World War II and freeing up Allied resources, all of these things played a role. And I think one of the major uh, contributions of the Alperovitz school 
is bringing the Soviet invasion of Manchuria to light. Uh, that's something that is often forgotten in the West for, for whatever reason. But uh, the Soviet Union invaded Manchuria the same morning that uh, Nagasaki was hit with the second atomic bomb. And that was no small campaign. If you look at a map, Manchuria is surrounded on three sides uh, by Russia, uh, back then the Soviet Union, and 84,000 Japanese soldiers approximately were killed in that short campaign as well. Uh, and that was not just some cheap late war land grab by Stalin. You know, as we talked about earlier, Stalin did like acquiring territory. The Soviet Union was expansionistic. Uh, and the, of course, the Soviet perspective is very different from the uh, Americans' perspective, for instance. But uh, but again, that was, uh, that was a pretty significant uh, addition to our chocolate chip cookie recipe as well. <laughs> and then uh, finally, we get to the use of the atomic bombs. Because I think that it's worth uh, noting the Japanese were still fighting. You know, people will ask me, well, why did we have to bomb Hiroshima or, or especially Nagasaki? Why did we have to use a second bomb? Well, let's not forget that the Japanese were trying to kill as many Americans and Brits uh, as they could up until the point of surrender. And that's just uh, allied soldiers. Then we take into consideration uh people fighting throughout the East Asia co-prosperity sphere, as Japan's empire was known, uh, millions, maybe, depending on whose numbers you trust, tens of millions of Chinese alone were killed by the Japanese during World War II. That killing continued uh, as well throughout the war. And so how do we bring this to an end? And I do think it was the concerted effort of many of these things. And my opinion my subjective opinion on this is that the atomic bombs did play an important role in ending the war when it ended. Uh, victory could have been achieved using conventional means. We don't know how long it would have taken. I think that the strategic bombing survey estimated, uh, you know, between November 1st and the end of December, something like that. Of course, when you do the calculations, that adds up if we estimate conservatively to still thousands of Americans alone uh, being killed. But again, we'll never know if it would have lasted a few more days or a few more months. I tend to think it would have lasted a few more months myself. But again, it's it's all what if uh, type of stuff. But I think that the uh, use of the atomic bombs was uh, valuable for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, the United States and its allies, the Brits, ever you know, all the major powers involved were getting really good at inflicting death and destruction. We talked about the, the bombing of Tokyo, for instance. What's the difference between bombing Tokyo and bombing Hiroshima? And we might think about, you know, atomic bomb, radiological effects, uh, different the contamination, things of that nature. Uh, one of the big differences that I rarely hear mentioned is the fact that you can resist a 500,000 plane bombing raid. Maybe not very successfully in the case of Japan, but as we know, Japanese soldiers had no problem fighting and dying in combat. And so if I send 500 or 1,000 planes to your city, uh, there are countermeasures for that. You can scramble the fighters. And Japan, of course, did not have very many of those, but they had some. You can man the anti-aircraft guns. You can shoot back. You can die a glorious death, but you can fight back. You can sound the alarm, as the Japanese did. Uh, you can try and hide in a, base, in a basement or things like that. But with an atomic bomb, it's different. You don't have the opportunity to fight back. And nuclear weapons are very much a weapon of psychology. This was addressed in the target committee meetings. Um, you know, how can we psychologically shock the Japanese to the point where they're willing to surrender uh, unconditionally? And so the atomic bombs, I think, you know, were revolutionary, not only in the sense that you could destroy a city with one bomb, but there was nothing that you could do to fight back against it. And so I think that that's one part of the equation. Uh, the other thing is, 
you know, the uh, the Japanese had wanted to surrender for a while. This is something else that's brought out by the Alperovitz, uh school of thought that is not brought up enough. <laughs> but uh, but the Japanese had wanted to surrender for quite a while. R- remember, at Pearl Harbor, they wanted a strategic victory. They wanted to own the Pacific within a few weeks, maybe a month or two. And they got into this big war, protracted war that they had not planned on, that they were not ready for, and that they did not want. And so they were trying to negotiate their way out with the Soviet Union, but they were not trying to negotiate a surrender. They were trying to negotiate an equal peace in which they had several demands. And that's the part that maybe does not come out as much in the Alperovitz school that we should consider. They wanted to keep the emperor. They wanted to uh, make sure that their uh, home islands were not occupied, that that they would not be tried for war crimes, et cetera, et cetera, that they could keep land still under their occupation. still under their occupation. So, so yes, they wanted to end the war, but they kind of wanted to dictate terms to that, uh, for that. And so, you know, we take it, go, go ahead, Robert. I've been talking too long. I go here. Of course, you're right that the Japanese had been making overtures through back channels to peace for over a year prior to the end of the war. And you enumerated a number of things there, but really the sticking point was whether or not Hirohito would remain emperor after the war. And it was only and Richard Rhodes, who I've become friends with while working on this book, who of course wrote the epic uh, nonfiction history, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, documents this very well, that uh, it was essentially an off-script slip of the tongue by FDR Uh, who went from saying, we demand surrender from Japan to we demand unconditional surrender from Japan. So that the sticking point, whether or not Hirohito would sit on the chrysanthemum throne after the war, became uh, a non-starter. And as Churchill, this is a direct quote from from Churchill in Rhodes, once uh, FDR had gone off script, Churchill said, any divergence between us, even by omission, would on such an occasion and at such a time have been damaging or even dangerous to our war effort, end quote. And so as Rhodes right. says, unconditional surrender became right. the official allied policy. Well, the Japanese were no more going to renounce Hirohito, who was divine in their belief, than the United States, had the shoe had been on the other foot, would have renounced Jesus Christ in the 1940s. Yes, you can (laughs) surrender. We'll stop bombing you. Just give up Jesus. It's a non-starter. And even FDR, and then his successor, Truman, and even Churchill and his successor, Attlee, both knew that there had to be a functioning government on the home islands post-war. They both knew that Hirohito was going to have to sit on the throne forever, and he did. Hirohito uh, lived until 1989, I think it was. He spent many decades post-war being emperor. So I think that's a very significant issue, that they were looking for peace, they wanted peace, and suddenly we went from, okay, what would it take to get you guys to stand down to no matter what, no matter what you uh, say you will give us, unless you give us unconditional, which we won't even impose, we didn't. We never made Hirohito stand down or apologize or do anything, although subsequently right, Hirohito right. did, uh, is an enormous significance. I think the second significant fact here is, because we lump it in, did we have to drop the bombs, uh, plural, mm-hmm. on Japan when there were two separate events, the bombing of Hiroshima 
and the bombing of Nagasaki. And for Oppenheimer, who of course is my viewpoint character in my novel, the Oppenheimer alternative, it was the time of the second bombing that really changed his mind. After the first bombing, as you well know, he went on stage uh, at Los Alamos at the the stage that had the theater and held his hands above his head like a prize fighter and strutted. We were victorious. It was only when 72 hours later, three days later, that a second, indeed the only other bomb in existence, although neither Japan nor anybody else in the world knew that, the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, that Api said, wait a minute, what's going on here? We haven't even given them a chance. And that's true when you think about it. This is 1945. There's no television. Radio lines are down. Telegraph lines are down. Roads are bombed out. Word travels by people physically moving. Railway lines are are bombed out. Physically moving from Nagasaki, sorry, from Hiroshima, to Tokyo to say what had happened. And then a scientific team and so forth going from Tokyo to Nagasaki, to Hiroshima, excuse me, to assess the damage and see if there really was a super weapon used. General Groves would not wait for that. I think the most damning fact is Groves's own, and I'm going to use the word testimony here because we're essentially putting all of this on trial. On July 16th, 1945, the Trinity Test. Farrell, General, became General Farrell later. Farrell, uh, who was uh, Groves' assistant, comes up to Groves and says, after they've successfully demonstrated the bomb, the war is over. And what did Groves reply? Yes, after we drop two bombs on Japan. After we, this is in Groves' own book. Now it can be told. Groves himself. Right saying this. The agenda was not to end the war with an atomic bomb. The agenda was to test on cities deliberately held back from the firebombing that had ravaged Tokyo and many other cities except a short list preserved as potential atomic bomb targets, a list that had added to it by direct order from Secretary of War Stimson Kyoto, which he himself had visited and considered too spiritually important to the Japanese people and too beautiful to the sensibilities of anyone to allow to be bombed. The agenda was right from the Trinity test to test both the foolproof uh, thin man design, little boy design, excuse me, that was used on Hiroshima and the problematic fat man design that was dropped on Nagasaki. And when confronted with a meteorologist report that told Groves and also told Paul Tibbetts, who was the point man on Tinian, that you're, you're going to have bad weather if you don't go now before there's even a chance for Japan's emperor to assess the damage. He might, if you don't go now, he might surrender. You better go right now and bomb what was supposed to be Kokura and only because of overcast skies, that bad weather, the meteorologist is speaking of. The plane flew on almost to its limit of, uh, of endurance in terms of how far it could fly and bombed the civilian population on Nagasaki. So it's a very nuanced question because the bombs, plural, were they necessary? I don't think so. Was one bomb necessary? 
That's a very different argument. And Oppie went as far as the one bomb. It was the two bombs that was quite literally a bridge too far for him. Uh, right. Now, I've got another Louis Alvarez story, uh, which gives some insight, uh, some further insight to the thinking at Nagasaki. I uh, I have a little different take on, on some of these things. Uh, we started by talking about the emperor, for instance, and uh, his position. That uh, leads into a subjective question. Is unconditional surrender important or not? And there were people who thought that it was more important than others in Washington. And that was something that was debated at that point in time. Uh, The surrender was unconditional. Now, the last piece of diplomatic correspondence, uh, the Japanese that the Japanese sent to the United States via Switzerland, they, they basically said, okay, you've, you've beat us into this corner. And I'm paraphrasing greatly, as you can tell. We're ready to quit, but let us keep the emperor. Do we have a deal? And I think that that was around August 10th or 11th, something like that. The American response did not give the emperor a guarantee of his position. What they basically wrote back was they said, look, you know, from the moment of surrender, all of the emperor's authority, all of the military's authority is going to be transferred to our military governor of Japan. And ultimately, your people will... uh, freely decide in in elections what type of government that they want. Now, you look at that, and uh, often the entire telegram is not given so that people can analyze it and look at it themselves. It's clearly not a guarantee of the emperor keeping his position, but it doesn't say he's going to die in the hangman's noose for presiding over, you know, unimaginable war crimes throughout Asia either. <laughs> and I think that it was written that way intentionally. I thought that I think that there was a lot of thought that was given to it, uh, but clearly, at least to me, in looking at the uh, the the telegram as a whole, there was clearly no implicit guarantee. There's clear, there's definitely not a clear guarantee. And I don't, I think that clearly there's not an implicit guarantee of that either. And I agree, uh, I agree that there was not a guarantee after we had bombed two of their cities and they didn't know how many more, the answer was zero, but they did not know how many right. more atomic bombs we had. But the issue right. was not what they did after we bombed them, but what offer they put on the table almost a year in advance of that, which was the same offer. Let us keep the emperor and we'll stand down. Right. And, and, uh, and, and at that point, we said, nah, not so much. We continued to fight until, as as Groves himself said, if, if I spent $2 billion of taxpayers' money and didn't show anything for it in the end, I would spend the rest of my life appearing in front of congressional committees. He was, <laughs> and I use this word somewhat advisedly, Alan, hell-bent on making sure that the bombs were used in combat and perceived as being necessary. So yes, absolutely, you're 100% correct. The Japanese uh, did surrender unconditionally after we beat them with atomic weapons. But in the end, nonetheless, that unconditional surrender amounted to the emperor retaining his throne. And they would have given us the same thing before we used the atomic weapons. As Emilio Segre famously said, once Hitler did with a single bullet, that thing that that $2 billion in the best minds of the Western world couldn't do, Segre said at Los Alamos, For me, Hitler was the personification of evil and the primary justification for the atomic bomb work. Now that the bomb could not be used against Nazis, doubts arose. 
Those doubts, even if they do not appear in official reports, were discussed in many private conversations. So they're very much, we have to be careful here when we say, well, here's what happened after we dropped the bombs. Yeah, but there was a whole lot going on before the bombs were dropped. We haven't even begun to touch on Leo Zillard and the petition from Chicago. Um, the reason it's called still to this day, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is it's because it's short for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of Chicago. The military classification of the petition by Zillard and others who said we can't in good conscience do it. It's not either militarily necessary or or, or morally acceptable to do it, being suppressed by Leslie Groves, classified so it couldn't be circulated. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. A telegram set by people who were beaten by not one but two atomic weapons being dropped on them uh, is a historically significant document. But we got to view it in the aftermath of Hitler killing himself, even the atomic scientists saying, what the hell are we still doing this for? And the military particularly in the person of Groves and Stimson, although Stimson was not nearly the hawk that Jimmy Burns was. Uh, Stimson was you know, an honorable man who had served as Secretary of War in both world wars, uh, pushing ahead to show that they hadn't wasted $2 billion of taxpayers' money to the Americans and to show to Stalin, who Truman, honest to God, said will never have nuclear weapons, that the Soviets don't have the smarts to ever get them on their own which, of course, they did it. They stole <laughs> from your lab. <laughs> but I think there's there's a lot of context here that it doesn't come down to one telegram or one quote that I've made uh, that, you know, this was a very nuanced issue. And a lot of people at that time, let alone, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, me or whether it's Alex Wellerstein or whether, whether it's you, Alan, uh, there was a lot of nuance in this discussion. Right. I, I don't think that the Allies would have allowed uh, anybody in Nazi Germany to retain a power of authority after World War II. I think the objective was to uh, completely annihilate Nazism. And I think that that was similarly the goal in the Pacific as well, uh, for various reasons. Japan is a nation, Imperial Japan, I should say. Uh, <laughs> uh, Imperial Japan is one of the most murderous, violent, expansionistic nations in history. And so I would put them in the same category as Nazi Germany. There's very diff That's not to say that they were the same type of country with the same type of objectives, but these are clearly uh, two regimes that are cut from the same cloth, the same as the Soviet Union, which is why we never really got along with them, except for that small window of time when Hitler uh, brought us together. But I think that, you know, the idea of allowing somebody in Nazi Germany to retain authority or in Imperial Japan uh, was something that a enough policymakers couldn't stomach to where they wanted unconditional surrender. Uh, the emperor um, did, as you say, he stayed around for many decades after that. And he became basically Doug MacArthur's marionette from that point forward. And I think that, you know, when you look at what the emperor did, that, uh, to your point, he was a deity. And uh, to basically have God telling his soldiers to put their guns down, that really makes for a much more peaceful transition to peace. And of course, the allies, uh, the allies allowed Hirohito to 
become a figurehead at that point in time and to retain his throne for many years. Uh, he clearly, to me at least, bore a lot of responsibility for what happened over the previous decades. And to say a lot of responsibility, I would say, is an understatement as well. But I think that you know Japan often gets put in this different category than uh, Nazi Germany. And uh, I've never really quite understood uh, why that's the case. But uh, anyway... You, you know, as we all know now, there was no guarantee. And the Allies, there was a lot of war weariness in the West. Uh, nobody wanted to keep fighting. Everybody was sick of, of all of the death and destruction. They wanted it to end victoriously and uh, quickly. And uh, I think that the use of all these ingredients successfully produced that or unconditional uh, victory that, uh, that was called for. Now, there's a lot of other things. Uh, that you bring up as well, and I don't know which would be the first to uh, to address. Nagasaki, for instance, the use of the second atomic bomb, there's a lot to talk about there, as well as the other things. You mentioned the Soviet nuclear weapons program, which is very interesting as well, and espionage and uh, posturing uh, from between the West and the East. But I'll let you direct the uh, conversation, Robert. Well, we've been going for an hour and 10 minutes at this point, so we probably should be Actually, I suspect our hosts want us to be moving towards conclusions. Uh, so I'm not going. So I, I think the conclusion that comes from what you very uh, successfully articulated, and I hope that I was at least a patch on what you did as well for, uh, in some points, uh, countervailing points of view, is that this was an enormously complex time, enormously complex issues, and there's just no way to bring it down to a single sentence. Yes or no, we should have or shouldn't have used the bombs. Yes or no, uh, it ended the war. What we can say for sure is that we've lived for 75 years, or we will, assuming we make it until August 9th, we will have lived 75 years without atomic or nuclear weapons having been used in battle. They've been tested, of course, but not used in battle. And maybe... It is because of the horrors that maybe the whole world had to see once what could be done. I mean, even the, the West was astonished. And Groves, as you well know, didn't believe the reports of radiation sickness coming out of Japan initially. It was only subsequently that we came to realize that these are bombs that don't just kill in a blinding flash. They killed for days, weeks, months, years, decades through cancer and other radiation-related uh, illnesses. Um, whether or not it was a defining moment ending the war, it was, and I even make this point late in my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, the beginning of a new age, an age in which humanity has had the ability to destroy itself, and at least for three quarters of one of the 100,000, one century, out of the 10,000 centuries, the 100,000 years uh, that there have been human beings, for three quarters of one of those centuries at least, we've lived up to our scientific name, man of wisdom, and not used those horrible weapons again. And so if Los Alamos stands for anything, and certainly the peace monument in Hiroshima, the pacifist constitution, that now governs Japan, the United Nations, which formed in the wake of World War II, uh, the fact that 
there was only a cold war and not a hot war between the superpowers subsequently. All of this comes down to what Robert Oppenheimer, Leslie Groves, that brilliant crew of scientists, that amazing laboratory that you're privileged to be the archivist for that still exists, brought upon an unsuspecting world 75 years ago this summer. So well said. And, you know, I have very little to, uh, to add to that. One thing that, uh, you know, Oppenheimer's speech that he gave here in Los Alamos after the war, uh, after the war was over, which I believe is in the book, at least portions of it, yes, it wasn't very right. long. Uh, he almost improvised that speech, uh, as, as I recall the story going. But uh, that's something that we've not forgotten. In fact, the uh, Army-Navy E-Award pennant is still on display in one of our buildings as a reminder of the heavy responsibility that uh, the United States and Los Alamos uh, and the rest of the Manhattan Project as well did to bring nuclear weapons into existence and having used them uh, in combat and no other nation, as you mentioned, has. The, uh, the second director of the laboratory was named Norris Bradbury. And the museum here in Los Alamos is named after Norris. A lot of people will ask me, well, who, you know, we didn't know that Ray Bradbury had a connection to the laboratory. Why is your museum named after, Ray named Ray after Ray. him? <laughs> it's like, it's not Nor it's not, it's not Ray, it's Norris Bradbury. And they have no clue who he is. Uh, it, it was named after Norris because he was the director for 25 years from 1945 until 1970. He uh, was a group leader during World War II. He assembled the uh, non uh, nuclear components of the gadget below the Trinity Tower. And so a lot of people who have never heard of him before have probably seen him, at least if they're interested in this history. The pictures of the gadget up at the top of the 100-foot uh, steel tower at Trinity, in most of the photos in the background, you'll find Norris Bradbury there. And Norris, and this surprises people who do know a little bit about him and that he was the director of Los Alamos for so long, uh, he didn't like nuclear weapons. In fact, he said, I hate them. And I think that a lot of first generation folks who walked with Oppenheimer, not all of them, uh, I don't think Louis or Harold, who I mentioned earlier, I don't think that they necessarily felt this way. Um, but uh, Norris really didn't like nuclear weapons. He recognized that in a dangerous world, though, that they were useful uh, in keeping the peace and helping. And I should say there are other factors, of course, that we must recognize. But uh, nuclear weapons helped, I think, keep the peace between the great powers, at least during the Cold War. Maybe they do today. Maybe they will tomorrow. But Norris always looked forward to a day when people wouldn't need such horrendous devices to manage the peace. I think he really looked forward to a day when a better idea would come along. And we're still looking for that. And, uh, you know, today, I challenge some of the new people coming to the laboratory when I welcome them, when I give talks and things of that nature. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Robert, this technology changed the world. Trinity was arguably the greatest single scientific experiment in history because so much changed so rapidly. Uh, it represented the pinnacle of so many decades of so many fields of science, and it, uh, and it changed our understanding of nature. And it continues to change the world today for completely different reasons in addition to that as well. But you have this peril and this promise intermingled together. I challenge our younger people today. It was technology that changed the world, that helped us, I would say, 
considering what had happened in the Great War in World War II, uh, maybe is a step forward. Technology is probably going to help us take the next step forward as well. And I don't know what that technology will look like that uh, helps people to get along and to respect diversity, uh, to work together, yet maintains the peace at the same time. I don't know what it is, but I challenge our young folks here that uh, when that new idea does come about and history changes again, that I hope that it'll be our laboratory that produces it first and quickly because the world needs it. Uh, and so that is the uh, World War II, Trinity, the atomic bombings, the aftermath, uh, the espionage, all this, the characters are an amazing story, but it really happened. It's not, it's not just a book. And Robert, I should say for the portion of the book that I've got through already, and I want to thank, uh, thank the publisher for sending me a copy, and it has made me a, uh, it is making me a science fiction fan. <laughs> uh, yeah. What you did, I thought, so well was to take these real-life characters and put them into a fictional setting. And uh, I thought that it was interesting. It was intellectually challenging. It's been a, I don't know if fun, considering the subject matter is exactly the word, but it is entertaining and, and it's fun, but it's also challenging and thought-provoking. And just uh, the mastery of the characters, getting to know these folks, based on my knowledge at least, uh, was so nicely done. And I hope that uh, I hope that we'll get to chat again one day soon. There's so many other we've we've done some other pretty cool far out stuff. We were trying to go to Mars in the 1960s uh, here at the laboratory, and we oh, when came you up get with some nuclear rocket novel, engines. When you get farther along in the novel, you will find that figures in the plot. Yes. And so Orion, uh, or, or Orion, sorry, uh, the, the, the Orion program and Freeman Dyson's involvement in that, we had a uh, arguably the single biggest program in the history of the laboratory was called the Rover program. And we were trying to develop nuclear rocket engines uh, to go to Mars and back. Uh, now, you won't be surprised to know that those started out as a hydrogen bomb delivery system. But <laughs> after Sputnik, that technology was quickly rebranded to uh, explore the uh, the solar system. And we built three nuclear rockets that worked well. And so that'll be hopefully another good story for another day. <laughs> yes. Thank I... you for the kind words. I hear Helen yes. coming in. No, I'm trying. I hate to interrupt you. Obviously, um, these topics are so complex that maybe a one-hour podcast was a little ambitious, <laughs> but I appreciate your time. And I, what I hope we've demonstrated is the research that goes into um, writing nicely well-done, accurate historical fiction as the Oppenheimer alternative obviously is based on our conversation. So um, our guests today were Alan B. Carr, the senior historian at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and Hugo and Nebula award-winning author Robert J. Sawyer. And so thank both of you for joining us. An absolute pleasure. Alan, what a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. I look forward to next time. Helen, David, thank you so much for putting this together. Robert, it was awesome. And uh, let's stay in touch. For sure. For more episodes of Did You Hear, go to the Johnson County Library website, jocolibrary.org slash didyouhear. Please stay safe, everyone. The, uh, I lost my train of thought there. You can edit that out, can't you, David? <laughs> <laughs>